Uh, we are continuing our series, our study of the Reformation and the truths that were recovered at that time in history and the, the relevance for us to continue to cherish and defend them today under this banner, Would You Protest? And, and it's been interesting to, to follow a little bit of the, of the news coverage of this event. You know, when something, when it's the, the 500th anniversary of something this significant, you, you can't pass over it in silence. Uh, but secular news sources don't tend to be comfortable discussing theology, and so they talk about things like the social and political impact of the Reformation, you know, how it recreated the map of Europe, and how it led to the rise of the nation-state. Uh, they discuss its, its economic influence, you know, things like the, the Protestant work ethic, and, and the emphasis that was on the, the dignity of all labor, whether you're a priest or a plowman, that, that there's something sacred about every job and, and just how that uh, influenced the, the modern economy. And they discuss certain ideas like individualism and how that uh, became part of the building blocks of a, of a democratic society. Uh, but is that what the Reformation was about? What was at stake in this controversy? It wasn't about throwing off authority and giving a voice to the little guy. It wasn't mainly about reforming corrupt practices in the church and changing some rituals and allowing the clergy to marry, although I'm really thankful for that. Uh, but, you know, there were people who wanted to see all those things happen, but who didn't join in the Reformation. And listen, what was ultimately at stake wasn't even our salvation, although that touched everything. What was at stake was something more precious than any other reality. It was the glory of God. Does that sound strange to you? You know, we can, we can use the label Protestant, but not really believe that, that there's nothing more important than the glory of God. We can believe that on paper, while we're chasing after trinkets, there are so many things that we value and fight to have and include in our lives that have nothing to do with God's glory. But it's possible that we, we haven't even learned that on paper yet, that we haven't seen it on the pages of Scripture. It, it's certainly not something that you're going to learn from our culture. Our, cult, our culture teaches us that God loves us most when he makes us feel special. When, when he tells us that we're one of a kind and that he's privileged to have us. When he celebrates our abilities like a, a good life coach and he affirms our potential. But to believe that, you have to take the holy sovereign and shrink him down to a needy creature like us. And you have to ignore human depravity and inability, which means you have to make the gospel essentially unnecessary. You at least have to remove the word sola from each of these phrases. You know, Christ and grace and faith, let alone the scriptures, they, they become useful aids in our self-salvation project. And so whether you're a priest in the 16th century or you're somebody running a YouTube channel in the 21st century, the, the message is essentially the same. And, and it's that God has done a lot of helpful things if you're willing to grab life by the horns. 
This is why the gospel of the Reformation, the biblical gospel, is so countercultural in every age because it is not in any way a celebration of us. God does everything so that he alone is praised. And and that's the the message of our final sola, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And what what I hope we see today is how that's not only true, but incredibly good news. And we're going to use the first two chapters of the letter to the Ephesians as as a test case for this. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, and we are going to read, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we're going to hear today, we can put no confidence in the flesh. Lord, no confidence in my ability to present and to preach your truth Lord, no confidence on our own ability to receive this, to cherish it, to benefit from it, to be transformed by it. You must work. Would you work today again in us? Cause us to glory in these things that you might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's going to be so much that I'm leaving behind in this passage that it's almost painful. But in the original, this is one really long sentence. It's the second longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. And depending on how you count them, there are 14 different actions that God does for our redemption. It almost doesn't seem to end. 
I think of it like this. My, my daughter's birthday is coming up on December 7th. And now that we're in uh, November, her birthday as well as Christmas are very much on her mind. And, and like any almost five-year-old, she's always making a case for what she'd like to see as, as her presents for birthday and, and Christmas. But, but every day, there's some new toy that has caught her attention and that gets added to the list of things. And actually, she started to, she realized she's stacked too much up. And so she's starting to plan for, and when I turn six, and when I turn 10, <laughs> can I get this? And that's kind of how I feel about this, this passage. When you think that God has done way more than enough, Paul keeps adding to the list. And if you tried to read this run-on sentence without taking a breath, you would pass out. God has shown us amazing generosity. He has given us every spiritual blessing that he can imagine. And God has quite the imagination. But I want to focus on just one question raised by this text. Why? What is God after? Why has he orchestrated salvation in the way that he has? You put it another way. What are the solas for? Why the work of Christ? Why justification? Look at our passage here in verse 6. You have this refrain running throughout it. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In the verse 12, so that, when you see that phrase in scripture, you're, you're getting introduced to a purpose. You're being told, why is this happening? So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14, to the praise of his glory. This is why God pursues anything that he does. Nothing is more important to him. Look at this thought from John Piper. And, and by the way, this is the kind of message that you could probably footnote John Piper throughout the whole thing. Uh, he's just been a significant influence on me and us as a church when it comes to thinking about the glory of God. So I'm not really sure where his thoughts end and mine begin. Uh, but trust, we'll hear the Holy Spirit's thoughts. But he says this, from beginning to end, nothing in the Bible is more ultimate in the mind and heart of God than the glory of God. The beauty of God, the radiance of his manifold perfections. At every point in God's revealed action, wherever he makes plain the ultimate goal of that action, the goal is always the same, to uphold and display his glory. Let's see if this is true in a few places. Why did God make us? Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He redeems and shows mercy to his people for his glory. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And, and once you see this theme in Scripture, it is inescapable. You know, the, the senior lady, ladies recently did a study of Psalm 23. It's a, a psalm that we all love and love to recite. 
A lot of comfort in that truth. But have you ever noticed this phrase? Psalm 23, verse 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. Now, how many little shepherd and little lamb mugs have that printed on it? (laughs) Is that less comforting for you? You know, why doesn't God just do it for my sake? Aren't I enough? Well, as we'll see in a moment, we must not divide and treat as separate things what are really the same thing. But, but is this selfish on God's part? To put His glory first in everything? Does that make Him some kind of megalomaniac? Listen, for God to treat Himself as if He's second to any created thing would be for Him to live a lie. For him to act as if he's not the most important being in all existence would be immoral. It would be idolatry. It would be putting other things before God. And as we'll see, it would prevent us from experiencing the only thing that could ever satisfy us. It is right for God to be God-centered. It is the most loving thing that he can do. But we, we mustn't understand, misunderstand this. When, when we say that God created us and saved us for His glory, we don't mean that He was seeking something that He lacked, something that He needed. Like, like God was in eternity past saying, you know, this is all nice, but if I could just have one thing, if I, if I could just make a bunch of people to be around here to praise me and to glorify me. Yeah, Acts 17 verse 25 God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. We add nothing to God. God has no needs. He has no physical needs. He has no emotional needs. And where did Paul begin? Verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and that word be there is supplied by the translation to let you know it's a statement of of praise. But I think you should probably render it blessed is God. He's, He's declaring a fact. But here or elsewhere in Scripture, he's called the blessed God. And blessed meaning really, really happy, perfectly content. And, and he's the blessed God who blessed, blesses others. He's not some empty bucket seeking to be filled. He, he is filled to the brim and spilling over. Creation is an act of generosity on God's part. He is giving. He's a God who loves to share goodness and happiness with others. And, and it says he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ which means that God has never been lonely. He has always been relationally full in the fellowship of the Trinity. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all in this passage and they were never looking for a fourth member. Like there's some reboot band on tour and all they need is a bass player and you and I get to volunteer. We don't complete anything in God. 
the youth know that I like to poke fun at a particular worship song, and it's one that I actually like, um, but there's a line in it that says, you didn't want heaven without us. And I think I know what they're trying to say, but it, but it gives the impression that God's in heaven in the joy of the Trinity and says, if only I could have Evan May. <laughs> uh, get a life, right? If you never existed, if the entire planet and all of human history never were, God would not be at a loss. C.S. Lewis says, if a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. The sun radiates all on its own. And it is to your benefit and not the sun's to see the beauty of a sunset. And so glory is not something that God is after, something that's outside of him that he's looking to add to himself. Verse 6 talks about the glory of God's grace. And scripture talks about the glory of his might. God is glorious. He is so intrinsically before you or I ever show up on the scene. And so God being glorified means that his glory is put on display. The the panorama of his attributes, what Piper called his manifold perfections, are seen. And, and not seen with a passive response. Not put on display before people who react with some kind of mild interest. He means seen for what they really are. Which compels amazement and thrill. The Reformed pastor and revivalist Jonathan Edwards put it like this. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Which means for God to save you for his glory means for him to accomplish everything that is necessary in order to bring you to a place of being deeply satisfied in him. He is after your joy. And we'll tease out what that means for our everyday lives in a moment. But first let's ask, what is it about the gospel that ensures this? In other words, how does soli deo gloria relate to the rest of the solas if it's the reason why they exist? I flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul describes 
the fallen condition as being dead in sin. And there's something so hopeless and so helpless about death. I mean, you can send in a star coach to give his, his best, his most motivating and threatening halftime speech to the corpses in a morgue, but you aren't getting any winning plays out of them. They are remaining as they are. No matter how much you get in their face and tell them what they need to be doing, tell them how, how, how they ought to be scoring, there's no response. But interestingly, he says, you were dead in sin in which you once walked. And so we were the walking dead, following the course of the world. And so being dead, it doesn't mean no activity. It means that every inclination that we have apart from Christ leads ultimately to sin. The things that we do, even the apparently good things that we do, do not arise from spiritual life. They are not, they're not about God's glory. They're not righteous. They are self-serving, manipulative ways that we carry out the desires of our fallen nature. We were enslaved to God-belittling impulses, unresponsive to God and feeling perfectly content without Him. And that is desperate. Martin Luther saw this as the underlying issue of the Reformation. His most important book that he, he, he described it was on the bondage of the will. He said, you can burn all my books except for my catechism and this one. And it was a response to a man named Erasmus who wrote a book titled On the Freedom of the Will. And Luther told Erasmus, you see the issue. You've located what this controversy really is about. It wasn't about ultimately indulgences or purgatory or the mass. There was, there was something underneath everything else. And it had to do with how capable we are or how sinful we are. Are we able to please God? And Luther describes it like this. If I'm ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me. Now, if I'm ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve him. For I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to him. Which means the glory of God was at stake in this. But, but he talks about what I can do and what I must do before God. What I'm able to do and what I'm required to do. And, and the church in Luther's day, they, they lowered the bar of God's expectations while raising the level of man's moral ability. They made what I must do lower than God's holy standards and what I can do much more than what Scripture says of me. And what Luther realized, both from reading God's Word and from knowing his own heart, is that humanity is so sinful that God must accomplish 
everything that is necessary in order for us to be acceptable to him. He must awaken spiritual life. God must do all the work required to justify us and his grace must create in us the kind of response that can receive that work. We're absolutely dependent on him. Which means to answer Luther's question, I can attribute nothing to myself and everything to God. Here's how Paul puts it. Death requires resurrection. Verse 4, but God, and it's so counterintuitive. There's, there's nothing about verses 1 through 3 that makes this follow. There's nothing about this that originates in us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, spiritual life, and acceptance before God are not our own doing. It cannot be given our condition. It requires so much, something so much more radical than a few good deeds and some sacraments. It is not a 10-step recovery program. It is a miracle through and through. And Paul is emphatic in this text. In, in the word order, it's like he puts the word God in bold print. Literally, it's like he says, God's is the gift. He wants the contrast to be clear. Not you, God. There's no room for human initiation, let alone merit or achievement. And the word this, in this is not your own doing, grammatically it refers to the entire clause before it. Salvation by grace through Faith And so not only grace, but the faith to receive it is a gift from God. It, it has to be this way. Spiritually dead people can't resurrect themselves to follow God. Right? We are like Lazarus in the tomb. We are awaiting the voice that says, come forth, be alive. We don't start up the conversation. He raises us. And now we breathe and Respond to him. Grace makes us alive to God. It frees us from our slavery to sin. It gives us a new appetite. It awakens our eyes to his beauty. It enables us to trust the Savior who's done everything required in order for God to be totally for us now and forever. Now, why did God arrange things in this way? Why has God done it so that human contribution gets excluded? Well, Paul gives us the answer. 
so that no one may boast. The gospel is a loving assault on human pride. It mercifully dislodges us from being the center of our affections. And that puts negatively what Paul says positively in verse 7. So that, a given purpose there, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. There will be nothing to distract us from this. In all eternity, we will not for one minute be celebrating the 1% that we brought in order to get there. Whether that's works or faith or Anything else that will never enter our minds, that will never distract us. God saves us in such a way that he preserves the display of his glory to our everlasting enjoyment. And so Paul says in Romans eleven thirty five, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. The, the road of generosity runs in one direction. God is not looking for any help. He's pleased to have it this way. And here's the result. To him be glory forever. Soli Deo Gloria. Now, if the reformers saw our desperate condition as the theological point of departure from the Roman church. They also saw idolatry as the main heart issue behind all of this. The French reformer John Calvin said that the fallen human heart is like an idol factory. We so easily and so readily let other things Take God's place. And here's how this happens. When you, when you mess with the sufficiency of God's work to save us, you, you begin to introduce other players, right? You now have the church and the Pope and the saints and Mary who play some kind of mediating role in our salvation, which means you direct some of your attention toward them. Right? You implore the intercession of the saints. You look on their statues and relics. You adore the host in the mass. You venerate Mary. You look to these other individuals and practices to provide some kind of rescue to you. And listen, they are unimpressive substitutes. Which means you rob God of the glory that belongs exclusively to him. But the main way that this gets expressed is that you begin to look to yourself. Martin Luther made the point that works righteousness violates the first commandment. He said that even if you were able to obey perfectly all of the other commandments, but you derive some kind of comfort before God by your obedience, some sense of safety and acceptance because of how you managed to pull it off, you would still be breaking the first commandment. You would have become your own idol, the one that you are looking to 
and trusting in for security and hope. And it is so easy to do this. Whether or not you practice the sacraments and penance. In fact, in in the way that all the other commandments fall when we break the first, Luther pointed out that the heart behind every sin is self-justification. I mean, think about it. Why do you lie and break the ninth commandment? Because you can't deal honestly when you've done wrong. You hide your sin and your failure because if you're exposed, that would ruin your image and your self-confidence. Your hope is in you. Or what about when you covet and break the 10th commandment? You have located your identity in being the kind of person who has money and who has nice things. You, you are finding your standing not on the righteousness of Christ alone, but in your ability to achieve a certain status by having stuff. Or why do you ignore the Sabbath and break the fourth commandment? Because you are restless in your performance. You live by the assumption that unless I get to work, unless I ignore the limits that God has put in place in my life to the detriment of my health and my family and my participation in the worship of God. Life will fall apart because everything depends on me to deliver. Listen, God did not save you so that you could go on looking to yourself in this way. Philippians 3.3, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And you'll either do one or the other. Either you'll locate your confidence in yourself to your own misery and insecurity and exhaustion or you will glory in, you will delight in the grace of Christ alone received by faith alone on the final authority of Scripture alone and you will be satisfied knowing that God is satisfied already with you in Him. And the gift of the Reformation and of Soli Deo Gloria is the rediscovery of joy. Martin Luther said, if I could know that God were not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And he found it. He found that in God's word. He learned that he was accepted already. And as he described it, he entered paradise. Michael Reeves and Tim Chester say, what the reformers saw especially through the message of justification by faith alone, was the revelation of an exuberantly happy God who glories in sharing his happiness. He is not stingy or utilitarian, but a God who glories in being gracious. That is why, according to Romans 4.20, dependent faith glorifies him. To steal from his glory by claiming any credit for ourselves 
would only steal away from our own joy in so marvelous a God. Which is why it's the most loving thing that God can do to insist upon Him being the center of attention and the center of our affections. This is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed or the happy God. All right, I want us to take this insight into the rest of our lives. If God has orchestrated everything so that all the attention is on him as he is our sufficient provision and supply, what does it mean for us every day? It means that the best news that you can hear is that God desires to glorify himself through you today. You believe that? Is that how you hear it? There are so many Christians who don't hear it in this way. When when we talk about living for the glory of God, all they're aware of is all the stuff they're supposed to be doing. And so the version of Christianity you're living doesn't look like standing on your head for joy. It looks like weary obligation. Paul wants to rescue his readers from this. And so this is how he prays. Flip back to chapter 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness, this is glory language, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. All right, follow the logic here. When you pray for some, somebody, it's because there's something good that you want them to experience. At least I, I hope that's the case. I hope that's how you're more often praying rather than calling down curses on the people around you. And this is how Paul prays here. But, you know, we, we pray for things like healing or financial help or for them to be lifted out of depression. But, but it's interesting. Paul knows this church. He lived among them for an extended length of time. He loved this church. And you might think he would pray for some things that are more practical than this. There might be some specific people and needs that he decides to mention, that he wants to see God move and do in their life. But he prays this because he wants them to experience it. He knows it will be incredibly good. And this is scripture. And this this means that this is an inspired prayer. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to know certain things about himself and not just know it at the level of some nice ideas that we just read. 
Know it in our experience. Access it. Feel that he is in this way. He's the father of glory and he wants us to know his manifold perfections. His power, his riches, his capabilities, his accomplishing everything that we need. And when we see that, when we realize that, when we are affected by that, that is the definition of what glorifies God. Let's think about how this should transform our perspective on things like serving and sacrifice. Paul says that we're to know the immeasurable greatness of his power and the working of his great might. But for many of us, it's only our own power and might that we're aware of. And so it feels like we're never able to keep up. Like we're always depleted. We're never doing enough. And, and if we hear a call to serve for the glory of God, we just survey our lives. We think about all that we're involved in already and all that we're doing. And it feels like I've, I've got nothing left to give. I can barely keep up. And listen, a lot of the problem is, is the pace of our own lives. And we're aware of this as as leaders, you know, we present opportunities to, to serve and be involved in things, the life of the church. And it is challenging, it is increasingly challenging to gather people for that. You know, Ronald mentioned the opportunity to serve in LCC Kids and we made an announcement about that last weekend, sent out an email about it, maybe got one or two responses on that. And, and, and listen, I'm sympathetic. I, I know the way that life feels. But a lot of the challenge that we're experiencing is that all we ever think about is, what do I have capacity for? What remaining time, energy, and attention do I have left in me? And it doesn't feel like much. I feel this as a pastor when I, when I meet with people. Maybe I meet with married couples who are relationally strained and they just describe the chaos of their world and trying to get the kids to sports practice and all the homework that has to be done after that. And there's this on Tuesdays and this on Wednesdays and trying to make a case for, hey, you should be uh, pursuing personal time with God and being in God's word and praying. You should be building into one another and, and benefiting from being in a small group and this or that event in the life of the church and sometimes that just feels cruel it feels like y'all walked in with 99 burdens and I just added one more on top but the problem is that when we're reminded of something we've neglected or something we know we're supposed to pursue all we hear are God's expectations and demands and not invitations to delight not opportunities for God to be enough for us. And so we retreat, and I appreciate Miss Patrice's word, 
last week. We retreat to what's comfortable to us, to the measure of our own abilities and efforts, since functionally that's where our confidence lies. But I want you to see this in Scripture. Feel this. Glorifying God is not mainly about what we can do for God. It's about what God does for us and in us and through us. It's about how he can show up in our lives as amazingly powerful. It's Psalm 50 verse 15. This is a psalm. You should go back and read this. After God has made very clear with Israel, you think you're serving me? You think when you bring your sacrifices and offerings, that's because I enjoy getting a meal about that because I'm hungry? You think I need you? And he says this, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God is not looking for you to help him out. He's looking to be your deliverer. God is most glorified not when we bring our contribution, but when we bring our need. And that is the whole shape of the gospel. That was what the Reformation is all about. Let your entire life benefit from this. Stand on your head for joy in his sufficiency. We honor him when we are dependent on him, when we throw ourselves into needs and we don't try to escape him. That's why his, his power is most clearly seen in our weakness. Remember the Apostle Paul three times making a case to God, take, take away the weakness, take away that feeling like I'm not enough, I can't do it, there's something in my flesh that's antagonistic toward this. And God tells Paul, don't try to be enough. Let me be enough for you. Let my power be made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, right? This is sufficient grace. These are the five solas. It goes all the way and it touches every day of your life. And and, and so don't try to take away that feeling of I can't handle this. Don't avoid situations that make you desperate. When, When you place yourself in vulnerable circumstances, when you take the risk of people hurting you, listen, I know for some of you, that means even just showing up today. You are hurting and you are suffering and probably already today somebody said something stupid to you that crushed you. (laughs) It's very easy to want to escape. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming in your weakness and your need. God is delighted by that. When you serve beyond your ability, 
when there are moments in ministry where it feels like you've, you've just jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. You are throwing yourself on the mercy of God. Do you know what that feels like? Or do you never jump? You just look and say, no, there's no parachute. I'm not getting out of this airplane. (laughs) Because your confidence only reaches as far as your limitations and not the inexhaustible power of God. In your weakness, you show his strength. And so Peter says, 1 Peter 4.11, serve by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. And we could add a hundred other scripture verses that make that point. Serve not with the hope in and the aim at highlighting your sufficiency and showing, hey, you pulled it off. Good job. You're one of those people that have got it together. Serve in a way that makes you dependent, that he might be honored. And and for some of you, that, that just means it might just mean enduring really hard circumstances with this perspective. There's a biblical counselor named Charles Hodges and I was reading one of his, his books and he, he talks about a lady that he was meeting with and she was in a, a, a really significant uh, relationship with a, a man. It was a dating relationship. They weren't married, but they had been living together for a long time and he left her and moved on. And it just was so crushing to her. And she went into a period of depression, extended for over a year. And in meeting with her, and, and I hope you, you know this, and our hope in meeting with you when you come in, in your moment of need, is just to hear, what is this experience for you? Share the pain. But, you know, after doing that, Several times, he eventually shared this with her. He said, you need a new purpose in life. You've been living by this functional goal. First it was, I need this man back in my life. That's what I'm living for. I'm living for his attention. I'm living for his affection. And then it became, I'm living every day trying to get out of this depressed mood. I'm living because I need to be happy. I'm just frustrated and how I feel like I'm unable to even lift myself out of this. He says, you, you need a new life mission. I'm going to give it to you from God's word. And it's this. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. Does that sound hard? Or is that the most freeing news you've ever heard? You want that. When God has become your treasure, and that's the final thing to see here. Eric, if you'd come back up here, man. Serving gets transformed, but so does sacrifice. Verse 18, Paul mentions the riches of his glorious inheritance. It's, it's a glory that we get to see and delight in and that we will share in the joy of for all eternity. And he makes a really big case for why that is everything we'd ever want. And if you follow the logic, if you follow all the times 
that Scripture calls for you to sacrifice something. Calls for you to deny yourself. And listen, during the the day of the Reformation and the medieval church and, and today, there are a lot of people that live with some form of sacrifice and some ascetic mode of existence and deny themselves things as if that's the whole point. Listen, go back and read those commands. That's not the end of the sentence. That's not where the period is. You've stopped too short. It's always deny yourself so that you get something. Let go of the little trinkets that are in your hands so that with empty hands you can have riches. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. Sell all the worthless junk that you have in order that you might have all the billion dollars that reside there. Because there's more value than life and breath and comfort and stuff. Luther says in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, let goods and kindred go. Let them go. Your stuff, kindred, I know it's an old word, your loved ones, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. What does that? What, what creates in Martin Luther to be able to say, here I stand. You can have my head. You can tie me to a stake and set me on fire, but I'm not moving from where I am. So set the fire right beneath my feet because that's where I'm standing. What does that? You have that when you've stood on your head for joy and you don't want to trade anything in for this. His life was not more precious to him than the paradise he found in Christ. That's what you sound like when with the Apostle Paul you realize that death is a promotion. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be Ashamed. What do you mean by that, Paul? We don't like shame. We want to avoid that. Do you mean you don't want to be placed in situations where you might end up being embarrassed? Where people might think less of you? Where they might evaluate you? Where you might fail to deliver? Is that what you're talking about, Paul? Do you mean you don't want life to hurt? What's on the other end of this? His joy is much deeper than that. That I might... Not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored with my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't mess with this man. (laughs) You let him live, to live is Christ. You kill him off, gain. Christ is honored. God is glorified. When the Apostle Paul can say, death is gain because you are everything. It can't really be called sacrifice when God has done everything and promises to give us everything. And when we see that, we're willing to bring the nothing that we have and lay it on the altar and receive him day by day at the empty hands that we have. Let's stand together.
Here's why these truths matter. Why people were willing to die for them then. And why they are worth defending and protesting, not just around us, but protesting the impulses in our own hearts that compete with them. Their life itself. So I don't know where these truths need to find you today if you're living in a place of insecurity if you're feeling your guilt if you're living by some form of self justification desperate to prove yourself to vindicate yourself to escape Evaluation. There's no comfort there. Take yourself out of your thoughts. As C.S. Lewis said, that humility isn't so much thinking less of ourselves. It's not thinking less of ourselves or thinking more of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. What replaces that when you think a lot about God? When He is the center of your attention and your affections and your hope. So for some of you, you just got to get outside of the world of introspection, of being constantly turned inward running over in your mind how you measure up. Focusing on your failure. Look, you, you, will, you will not turn from sin unless you are convinced they are forgiven sins. He breaks the power of canceled sin. And He cancels sin by doing everything, not so that you can in your own performance continue to manage and add to it. Or maybe for you, weary obligation doesn't look like always managing guilt. It looks like never stepping out to serve. It looks like retreating to a couple of things that you've determined are reasonable. Because you can handle that or because they align with your particular vision for life the priorities that you have that don't really have anything to do with the glory of God. And that absorbs your effort. You bring your leftovers to Him. You're not going to taste His power. It's only when you risk. It's only when you move and you know, I can't do this. I can't have any confidence in me that he says I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Maybe there's been something else that's become the treasure of our hearts. 
and either we are desperately managing to try to keep it in place or we feel like life is over because it's been taken away. Look, I can't, I can't preach all the nuances that should be shared to somebody in those circumstances right now, but there is something that Paul knows of this single man this man who was shipwrecked and stoned and beaten this man who constantly had people questioning his motives analyzing the effectiveness of his ministry opposing him had friends betray him who, who said to Timothy at my defense no one showed up but all deserted me and when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain it's not just some little Bible verse that he has on a plaque on his wall. So maybe some of you, you're experiencing the reality of that and it hurts. Listen, God is mercifully preparing you for the day when all your joy will be in Him. He is expanding your capacity to delight in His glory for the next 10 billion years and beyond. That's what Soli Deo Gloria means. Let's rejoice in it.